uh, everybody, and it is my absolute uh, pleasure to chair our first session, which is going to get your taste buds going. Uh, hopefully you've had a chance to have a flick through. Please read carefully the briefing otherwise. But delighted to have uh, with us uh, John Pitts, and on his way is Lord Victor. I think he's going to be here in about... 10 minutes or so, so, so worry not. Uh, we don't do long introductions here. You can read people's bios in the pack. The important thing is to get into the meat of the subject. And it's brilliant to have Lord Victor and John Pitts here to really set the scene about what it is about social transformation that creates this phenomenon that we're here to discuss uh, over this weekend. So without any further ado, John, over to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, good evening, and thank you very much for inviting me. I, I, the sun has come out, and I've inevitably developed a cold, so I don't normally sound like this. I might, I might be a bit croaky. Um, what I want to do, I want to, I, I, I want to address two questions. Um, the first question is, how can a sense of alienation, inequality, or lack of belonging within disadvantaged communities propel individuals to join high-risk groups? So that's the question. Um, we can move on to that, I think. There we are. Okay. And I, I'm going to answer that as best I can. Okay. But before I do that, I'm going to just give you a, a quick rundown on, on, on some of the research I've done and some things that have leapt out at me uh, as a result of, of, of that research. Okay. Now, <clears throat> this is some research that, in fact, one of my students, uh, my PhD students, uh, did. She, she, she was uh, doing a study of uh, crime, victimisation and policing uh, three generations of African-Caribbean people on a housing estate. And um, she was very successful, got the PhD, and she's now my boss. Um, okay. And now I say that without resentment since I am semi-retired. And we talked to this guy, we talked to this guy, Leroy, 17. And he said, I've got role models, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela and all that, but they don't have to live around here, do they? And I thought this was very revealing. He, he was a bright boy. He understood. He did, we didn't have to talk to him about it. He understood <clears throat> the kind of assumptions that we would bring to the situation. And he, 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 he preempted us and said, yes, I know all about this. I know what a good life is. I'm, but they don't have to live around here, do they? And um, it's one of my favorite authors, um, Martin Amos. And he puts it like this. And I think he puts it more succinctly than, than I ever could. He says, yes, yeah, so far as the individual is concerned, it, it may very well be that character is destiny and the other way around. But on the larger scale, destiny is demographics, and demographics is a monster. And I think one of the things that I feel about all the places I've undertaken research is that um, it is, there is something about gang-affected neighborhoods which is toxic. Um, the first place I did the research was Waltham Forest. And um, eventually, the, 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 the report I wrote about it was called Reluctant Gangsters. And I called it that because uh, I was persuaded by the end of the research that if you lived in a particular place, uh, a gang-affected neighborhood, you were young, particularly if you were black or mixed heritage, it was, you had to find some point of accommodation with the gangs that dominated the area. And if somebody said to you, take this, take it there, deliver it, you did it. Okay, so, so I, 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 I suppose the, a sense of place is at the core of a lot of the kind of work that's, that I've been involved in. 
Waltham Forest, um, that was a, a revelation for me. I come from Waltham Forest, in fact, I come from Waltham, so I was born there, I grew up there. Uh, but then, um, in my late 50s, I went back because I met the head of community safety and uh, at a conference, and he said, uh, we, we've got a gang problem, can you come and have a look? And I thought, aha, <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm a social scientist, I, I know all about this, and I know how easy it is for people who haven't done all the research and things to think that they've got a gang problem, whereas in fact, all they've got is a few leery young people hanging around on street corners being a nuisance. So yeah, I'll pop down, I'd pop down. So my first morning there, um, I was supposed to meet a, a, a police officer and he got delayed. And the reason he got delayed was that the night before, there had been two kids on BMXs and they got either end of a, 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 a sort of pathway, tunnel, gummel or whatever you call it. And they made a phone call and when the kid came out of his house, they shot him, they shot him dead. Okay. And I suddenly realized that they weren't messing about, these people, and there really was a gang problem. And I think the revelation that I had, having spent many, many years uh, looking at youth justice, looking at, at young people in trouble was, that virtually all the criminology up to that point wasn't really interested in crime. It was interested in what the police did, it was interested in what judges did, it was interested in what magistrates did, but it wasn't particularly interested in crime. It was interested in social reaction. And it dawned on me that actually what we needed was to rethink what we're doing within criminology, to actually look at what uh, well, the subtitle of the subsequent book, The Changing Face of Youth Crime. The Changing Face of Youth Crime. So that was Waltham Forest. One of the things that stays with me from Waltham Forest was a, a, a young police sergeant, a young black police sergeant. And he made a point of going around to the houses of people he knew were seriously engaged in the drugs business, gangs and things like that, and knocking on the door and telling them that he knew what they were doing and that he and the police had their eye on them. And he says, you've got to do that. And of course, it's also something that Max Weber said a long time before that. He said, you've got to, they've got to know that we're here. They've got to know that we know. And I think that's, that's stuck with me because as we've seen the depletion of public services, as we've seen, if you like, um, uh, a withdrawal of the state, a withdrawal of law and order. Seems to me that issue about they've got to know that we're here becomes ever more, ever more important. So that was Waltham Forest. What the other thing I discovered in Waltham Forest, I think, was the links that went back, the historical links between people that used to work in organized crime during the, the heyday of the Cray brothers. Um, and what was happening in the here and now. And that, that certainly some of the families who are very deeply involved in the stuff, the granddad or whatever, had been involved in that. Okay, so so you you what what we hadn't what we weren't seeing there was a sudden well, a sudden sort of emergence of, of, a, of a, a particular form of crime. We'd seen some level of continuity. Brixton, um, while I was doing the research there, uh, I, I became very aware of the links between what was happening on the estates in Brixton and what was happening in the garrison communities in Kingston, Jamaica, and of the links between the two. And I think what also became evident to me, if to nobody else, uh, uh, it was my impression, was that the involvement of the, the gangs from Jamaica who had been driven out of the United States, who had settled in 
Hackney, Tottenham, Brixton, had had the effect of ramping up the levels of violence. So that, that seemed to me important. Uh, that was a, a picture um, that I came across when I was there. And uh, the, the, the big gang there at the time were, was the PDC, um, po the poverty-driven children. Uh, and uh, those are the youngers, the, the, the runners, things like that. Uh, the boy with the gun, and I don't know if it's a real gun, uh, it may be, um, he was eventually shot, shot dead. And um, his mum didn't know he was involved in a gang. She didn't know. Um, Leeds, West Yorkshire. Um, we were asked to go there, and uh, the, the question was, is, um, is, is West Yorkshire um, seeing the emergence of, of gangs? Is there a gang culture spreading across West Yorkshire? Um, the answer seemed to be yes, uh, yes to both. Um, and, but one of the things that, that's, that we have no evidence for, um, but seemed to be an overarching issue uh, there, was uh, lots of young people, lots of families, um, who criminal justice professionals, police, youth offending team, were pretty sure that the youngsters were involved in drug trafficking and were pretty sure that they were doing this on behalf of organized crime groups um, in the area, familial organized crime groups. And um, everybody denied it. Nobody would accept that this group existed. Uh, the families wouldn't talk about it. Nobody was talking about it. And um, I think the sense we got was that the there was profound intimidation coming down from these these large, well-organized, <coughs> organized crime groups, which was preventing, which was was preventing, any effective intervention with the young people. Uh, Moss Side, Manchester. Um, I was I went there because um, there, there was a big confrontation at one point between two groups of of Somali young and not so young people, and a firearm was discharged, and um, uh, Greater Manchester Police wanted to know. Uh, whether they were seeing, having, having responded to, quote, the gang problem anyway, they wanted to know if they were seeing the emergence of, um, of, of Somali gangs. And, and our conclusion was that, that, that no, they weren't gangs, but there were clan conflicts. But one of the intriguing things that I found, and one of the sad things I found there was, um, the, as we talked to young people, um, we heard quite a lot of talk of the mad Somalis and the warriors. And this is how uh, youngsters in other gangs, other young people in the schools, were describing Somali young people. And they were calling them this because they said that they're not frightened of anybody. They'll, they'll go up against anybody. If they've got a gun or a knife, they'll still do it. And then when I was talking to teachers in the schools where these youngsters went to school, uh, they spent quite a lot of time talking to the youngsters and saying, well, why do you do this? You're, you're, you're getting a reputation here for being absolutely fearless and taking enormous risks. And a couple of the kids are saying, because we're not frightened to die. And um, I became very interested in this. And then talking to people in the youth offending team, what they were saying was that they had quite a lot of Somali young people who were on orders and committed quite serious violent offences. And they were saying they, they, they appear to be dissociated both from the risks to themselves and, and, and the violence they're visiting upon other people. And I became intrigued with this idea of dissociation. But, uh, and they were far too young to have 
been in Somalia, or, or except when they were babies. So what was that about? So they couldn't have been traumatised as a result of the war. And, and eventually, by my peregrinations, led me to uh, the, the um, US Army Veterans website. And there they were talking about the intergenerational transmission of trauma. And I became intrigued by this, and, and they were citing children of Holocaust survivors, etc. That, that it, what's happening with traumatized pe people coming from terrible war zones uh, who then have children, the emotional relationship between them and their children is, is, is deeply affected by this. And, and of course, what we know about child development is, is if, if, if you're not given it, you, you ain't got it. And this apparent dissociation seemed to be a legacy of that. And I then went and, and, and spoke to uh, some psychiatrists about this um, who seemed to be persuaded that that was probably what was going on. And I think that's enormously suggestive in terms of what we might be seeing as uh, subsequently, we, and certainly in South London where I live and where I've done a lot of my work, you see a lot of youngsters coming in from the African war zones. Um, that does begin to explain to me in part so the, the savagery sometimes of some of the violence that, that, that I see there. Okay. Ipswich, that's our most recent, um, our most recent uh, voyage into the unknown. Um, and uh, there, it, it was, uh, we called it County Lines 2. What we see, what we saw there was um, uh, the gangs coming up from London, kids coming up in hire cars, kids coming up in cabs on the train whatever. And that then transforms into alliances formed between the people who are orchestrating this and a couple of local families who have notoriously been at it for years, who are then drawing in youngsters from two of the poorest neighbourhoods in Ipswich and um, who, of course, being local, have far more market penetration because they know lots more people. So what you suddenly... And, and then when I, when I start talking to students and colleagues about this. They say, yeah, it's happening in Brighton, it's happening in Canterbury, it's happening here, 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 and here. And one of the, one of the, 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 the issues here as well, which is interesting, is that whereas the youngsters coming up from London are almost all black, a lot of these kids are white. And so they're not getting nicked. They're not getting nicked as often as the black youngsters coming up from London. Okay. So that was, that, that's my experience. Those are some of the things that I bring from it. Um, um, but the question, the question is, well, how, 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 how do I, what kind of identities emerge uh, from this? And um, I, I, I want to look at socio-structural change. Yeah, what, I, um, what we've seen in the last 10, 15 years has been a massive polarisation in terms of income, in terms of opportunity, um, we've seen uh, we've seen um, a concentration of disadvantage. Um, we've seen um, we've seen the poorest families located on the pouring, poorest estates. We've seen those who have left these areas, uh, and um, so so we've seen we've seen a, we've seen the emergence of um, of very unbalanced communities, communities where there is. Um, where, where there's a, a breakdown of informal social control uh, and an absence of informal social support. We've also seen the racialisation of disadvantage. In London, at least, up to 70% of the, 
of the residents on the poorest housing estates are from black minority ethnic uh, communities. And these are the estates that everybody knows. They're, they're the, the Beaumont estate in Waltham Forest. It's Angel Town in Brixton. We could go on. We all know, we all know where they are. Okay. Um, the staggering statistic, which I, I keep going back and checking, is that by 1997, a quarter of the children born in this country were born into those neighborhoods, um, discredited neighborhoods. Colette uh, Pertonneau writing, um, writing about these kinds of areas in France, in the banlieue, um, says that living in such an environment creates a muted sentiment of guilt and shame whose unacknowledged weight warps human relations. Um, James Short, this, is, this will be very familiar. Uh, he's a, a, veteran, a veteran researcher. Um, certainly when I was a student, which was when Queen Victoria was a girl, um, I was reading uh, the work of James Short. And, and um, he talks about if you live in this world, if you live in this world of drug markets, of gangs, you develop alternative cognitive landscapes. You look at the world differently. He talks about soldier mentality. You are wired for action. He writes, how to concern for being disrespected, respect is easily violated because status problems uh, <clears throat> are mixed with extreme resource limitations. People, especially young people, exaggerate the importance of symbols, often with life-threatening consequences. Um, I think I better leave it at that. Thank you. Um, There'll be lots we'll of questions. Re return to some of these themes. Thank you okay. so much. Thank you. So, John, thank you. Victor, welcome. Thank, Thank you. For, no, you, it's great to have you with us. Um, we, we, we don't do long introductions here. So take your water with you, and the floor is yours for the next 10 or 15. Thank you. I don't know what's been said before me, but it sounded fascinating. Um, I'm um, not an academic, so forgive me. And I did say I don't do slides, and um, my ego's not involved. I've got all the... Um, I always say that um, some people are troubled by my titles. Um, and I think I'm, I recognise at least two people that I've met before. So since I'm an assume you're all friends, you can all refer to me as, um, as the Lord Victor Adibowali. <laughs> CBE. Um, so I, I, I want to talk to you from my personal experience, I guess. Um, some of you will disagree, some of you won't, and hopefully we can have a chat. And between the academic and the, uh, and the not academic, perhaps we might shed some light on what is a... A, a complex um, subject. Um, my experience uh, that might qualify me in some ways being here is that I'm the chief executive of an organisation called Turning Point which provides um, health and social care services to about 100,000 people a year and some of those services involve substance misuse um, uh, including to about 11,000 um, young people so we do come in touch. We are um, we are in touch with the police on, in 300 locations because that's where we operate. We employ 4,000 people. But I've also done work on policing for government. Um, I did a review of stop and search in, God, I'm old, uh, 2004. Um, I chaired the London, London Youth Crime Prevention Board in 2000 and I can't remember, six, seven, something like that. And I did a review of uh, the Met Metropolitan Police's response to mental health in 2012. I remember that very clearly. Um, <coughs> So it's from these experiences of engaging with the police and, and police policy and, uh, um, and people that um, I'm coming to talk to you um, today. And my remarks are particularly um, concerned with, with young people, and I'll explain 
explain why. I mean, I was also the chief executive centre point, so I kind of, I'm, I'm a bit biased in, in that regard. I see the issue of gangs actually as a stock and flow issue, and I put that as, and let me describe what I mean, and it's very simple. Um, I see it as in, in the flow of young people into gangs, that's the flow, and there's the stock of young people in gangs, right? and I, I, look at it, I look at it in those, in those terms. And let's uh, start with the flow. I have to say, I don't know what definition of gang you're using. I went on the internet and had a bit of a search, and there's quite a few different different interpretations of what we mean by a gang. I mean, I, I found one, I, since, you, since you're all associated with the police, I was quite interested in Bedfordshire. Uh, Bedfordshire. Anybody from Bedfordshire Police um, here? Well, their definition is quite interesting because on the website it says, a gang is, um, is usually considered to be a group of people who spend their time in public places that see themselves and brackets and are seen by others as a noticeable group, so that's me and at least five of my friends in in, in, that, in Bedfordshire that would de call and, and come under that definition. But then it goes on to say the stuff that I'm quite pleased it did say: engage in a range of criminal in criminal activity or violence. And then it makes a distinction between um, those gangs and what what's considered low-level um, offending by groups is referred to not as a gang but as a peer group. So I'm not quite sure what, what the difference is. I'm sure you've all sorted your definition for the purpose of this discussion out very clearly, but I think um, definitions are kind of important. Um, uh, um, there, is, there is another definition, which is an organised group engaged in criminal activity um, uh, that is organised, <laughs> um, as opposed to disorganised. Um, but what I can tell you is, is um, and this is... Uh, um, having s watched the, um, the furor and quite right uh, concern about uh, young people and gangs and knife crime, um, the following things come to mind from my work on the London Youth Crime Prevention Board, and it saddens me actually because that work went over a period of probably 18 months, nearly two years, and it was an in-depth dive into um, youth crime and, and, and its formulations, and I talked to gang members myself. I went into um, uh, areas where such people are formulated, flow from, and I also talked to those members who I would call the stock. And, and the following things are true from my uh, perspective. First of all, um, uh, gangs, and you, some of you know this, but it'll be interesting to know whether I'm even close to being right. There's gang members that are affiliated, sometimes through an act of violence or an act of loyalty intended to bring them into the um, culture of the gang, you know, I mean, anything from theft to a knifing. And then there's those that are affiliated to a gang um, who may not know they're affiliated until they choose to do something that the gang, or they choose not to do something that the gang wishes them to do, and then they find that they're affiliated. <laughs> um, um, but there's also, uh, and increasingly, I was just talking to some uh, of my um, uh, people in, in uh, Turning Point and others over the week in preparation for this, um, gangs that aren't really gangs. I mean, gangs that have a core grouping of people who know each other and engage in criminal activity. Um, uh, I think there is a difference between organised crime and crime that is organised, if you see what I mean. I mean, all crime that is organised is episodic. I think organised crime is strategic and, and, and much more, in a sense, worrying. Both can be dangerous and certainly both are 
are concerning to the public and, and your good selves. But um, people that are kind of associate members, they're not really affiliated, they're not a member of a gang. They join for an incident, an episode, an activity, and then are gone. Right? And, and there are those um, young people, and, and in, to this I'd refer to the work of Carleen Fermin, who was very helpful when I was doing the London Youth Crime Prevention um, uh, Board stuff, where she introduced me to uh, the notion of, of uh, particularly women who are associated with gangs by relationship, um, but don't consider themselves as a member of a gang, but may be involved in hiding money, possibly guns, possibly knives, but certainly would not consider themselves members of a gang. And some of these, these young, young women are quite middle class. They live in middle class areas with parents that wouldn't consider themselves anything like. And it's this notion of the hidden world of the teenager, well away from the adult parent, but involved in things that are quite um, uh, concerning. Um, but it's worth just pointing out uh, some of the things that, um, uh, that come to mind when I think about the, the, the gangs. The first is that, and this, when I think about gangs and the work I've done with gangs, it's always been associated with knife crime or violent crime. Um, but I have to say that when we did the London Youth Crime Prevention Board uh, work, uh, fear was the overriding principle that drove... Uh, the association with knives and the association with other, with other young people that carried knives and association with gangs um, that, were, that were involved in uh, collective protection and in collective activities associated with um, uh, uh, protection of areas or uh, postcodes or, or what have you. Fear was the um, overriding emotion. Um, uh, when I talked to um, teachers and those associated with young people, they would argue, they tell me that they, these are young people who are under the age of voting. They're not, they're not, they don't vote, and I think that's, really, that's relevant. They're not, they're not yet active, active citizens. Um, I think we were just hearing from uh, 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 my academic friend that um, this, this, a lot of this knife crime and gang activity tends to be associated with areas of, of, of poverty, um, poor environmental poverty, poor, poor environment, poor parents, concentrations of BME uh, groups, um, and areas where there's poor youth infrastructure. And that's important when I come to the stock part of this. And when I say poor youth infrastructure, I mean I don't just mean youth clubs, um, which are, in, I think, significant in this. At one point in London, we got so poor in terms of youth club activity. The biggest provider of youth services was the Peabody Trust. But I also um, uh, think about school activities, activities that, that some young people can afford, but these young people uh, can't afford to be involved in. And poor parental involvement, poor boundaries, and, and this, um, it's easy to blame the parents, but then when you're involved in parents that may have two or three jobs, um, I came across, and still do come across, parents where they, the parents literally pass each other on the stairs as one shift finishes, another one starts, the, the kids aren't really parented, um, but the house is clean, and the kids leave with decent clothes, but the parents just couldn't tell you where the kids are from one way or another. The psychology of that is, I mean, you all know that children um, need boundaries, and if they're not, they don't find those boundaries within the home, then they'll find them in other contexts, and the gangs, the gangs are part of that. So um, um, that uh, uh, deals with the flow. There were two, two other flow issues that I want to mention, and I'll mention stock, then I'll finish, I promise. It should take about three minutes. So 
Um, on the stock issue, one of the things that worried me and, and became apparent during the London Youth Crimester was the role of education in schools. So we had school exclusions, and my concern then, and even more now, is that the structure of the school system actually facilitated the exclusion of difficult children. Now, in those, when we did the London Youth Crime Prevention Board, they were going to the pupil referral units. Now, hopefully, we'll get to talk about pupil referral units in a different setting. Now, um, schools off-rolling kids. Now, I got a CBE for discovering that there were 80,000 young people who weren't in um, education or employment back in 1900 and freezing to death, right? But the point, the point is, I mean, they got the CBE. The, sometimes they give you CBE to shut up. I mean, as you can see, it didn't work. But the point is, those kids, are, that they are available. They're available for others, and they're more likely to be the kids that I've just talked about. Um, the kids in, but the off-rolling is deeply concerning to me because those kids basically aren't in school, they're, they're, left, um, they're, left, they're left to it. Um, so let me deal with the stock. So then there's those kids that are in the stock, i.e. they are in gangs. And I'm aware of the way certainly the Met, and I think other police officers tend to categorise gangs in the green and then red um, sort of categorisation. Um, I'm not sure how helpful this is. What I do know is that um, um, I know that you want to uh, categorise um, the seriousness of violence and, and uh, committed by gangs, but I think there's something about the individual young people that are engaged in those gangs and how we forget the relational issues between the forces of law and order and social services and those individual, uh, individual uh, young people. I think there are too many cases where it's often, when I talk about these things, I'm perceived as being uh, soft or not quite understanding the punitive elements that need to be brought to bear when people break the law. I need to tell you that personally that's not me, but what, it, what I am clear about is that you either have punishment that's appropriate and educative or you just have punishment. And the problem with just having punishment is that it isn't always appropriate. So I can tell you now that there are young people I know in gangs being found carrying knives four or five times. They get, um, um, they get a tag um, or something like that. Um, they, uh, they, uh, the tag comes off after a while and they're back into it. Right? because there's been no intervention that actually changes or looks at their behaviours and the contexts of their behaviours and the risks that they're under. And I'll just finish by saying that um, the, the experience of young people, um, many of young people that, that in, in both the flow stage and in the stock, um, and certainly those that carry knives and those that, are, when I talk to teachers, um, are below the age of 18, the significance of, that, of this is, is that kind of blinding glimpse of the obvious. The gang problem, like the knife problem, is not a youth problem. It's not a problem of our youth. A lot of them have had no, they have no influence over where they live, the conditions of what, what they do, their education policy, the criminal justice policy, the availability of educative and useful engagement, entertainment. They've had, it's nothing to do with them. It's not a youth problem. It's an adult problem, which makes it our problem. Thank you very much. Thank you so much.